tonight, everybody. Welcome to RUF. Um, it is kind of hard to believe that the semester is already over. Um, but if I'm honest, <laughs> I'm kind of tired. But I love you guys. Um, no, it's been a great semester, and I hope it's been good for you. Uh, whether this is your, what now, 12th time in a row at RUF, or whether it is your first time uh, we welcome you, we hope uh, you're having a good week, and we hope and we really do pray that you find RUF to be a safe place, uh, a safe place for the convinced and un- unconvinced alike uh, to come together and examine the true claims of Christianity. And the way that we do that on Thursday nights is that we open the Bible together, and we have been in the Gospel of Luke this semester. We've been asking Dr. Luke, who he was a physician, we've been asking him, Dr. Who, who is this Jesus? And there's a lot of ways to answer that question. There's a, lot, there's a big long story that Luke has been telling us through his gospel. Uh, but tonight we come to a very uh, a seminal moment in the story of Jesus. As Luke wants to tell us that if we want to be more certain about who this Jesus is, then we have to understand, we have to see, we have to explore the fact that Jesus died. So that's where we're going to be tonight. We're going to jump right into it here in Luke chapter 23. I'm going to pick up here uh, in verse 18 and then read to the end of the chapter. Let's read this together. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals on his right and one on his left And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, we come night tonight to a moment that for some is great news, for others is perplexing news. But for most of us, we realize that we fail to understand the gravity of this. We pray that your word would speak, that your spirit would work in our hearts to give us ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Flannery O'Connor. She's an amazing writer. She's a southern writer. So all the best writers are from the south. So they say. So I say. Um, but Flannery Connor, if you've never read her, I encourage you, especially her short stories are amazing. But one of, one of my favorite stories about Flannery O'Connor is she was once asked about one of her stories, I think by a reporter. Uh, she was asked if she could um, put the meaning of one of her short stories in a nutshell, to which she responded pretty pointedly. If I could put the meaning in a nutshell, I wouldn't have had to write the story. I think that I love that quote, and I think uh, there's a sense in which that very aptly applies to the story of the cross. Is there is so much here uh, in so few words, such so many things that surround this event. I mean, we get four different gospels that tell us about the life of this man Jesus, just so they can get to the point to tell us about the fact that he died and why he died. But the thing about the cross or crucifixions is that this event was not an uncommon event. This is not some special thing that the Romans thought up one day and said, "Hey, how about that King of the Jews guy? Why don't we put him on a cross? That'd be neat." No. 
Tons of people, thousands upon thousands of people died in this exact same way during this period of history. Uh, And many more would die in the same way in the name of Christ even after this. But here we have it when we get to Luke chapter uh, 23, when we get to the end of the Gospels, what we're told about is that the Christ of God, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, came into this world, lived a perfect life, was betrayed and charged as an innocent man, and he was put to death. He was murdered. He was killed. He was executed as a criminal. There's no glory in this event. There's actually a lot of shame. His disciples go on to hide for days. Even though He had told them about it, their their world is completely turned upside down when this happens. So Luke writes this Gospel. He wants us to be more sure concerning the things that we've been taught. And what he wants to tell us about the death of Jesus is that it really happened. It wasn't a mistake. We didn't get it wrong. It's true. And we can rely on it. How could you rely on somebody's death? Three things I want to look at. The road of the cross. The story of the cross. And the salvation of the cross. The first one is the road of the cross. And I don't know how familiar you are with crucifixion accounts and all the Gospels. But this one's pretty par for the course. It's a little different. Uh, from it, it gives us some details that, or some things that happen that, that other Gospels don't. But I wonder if, if, if maybe this is your first time in a while or whatever reading the account of the crucifixion. I wonder if there was some sense in you. That when we got to verse 33, look at verse 33. For all the build up to verse 33, uh, I wonder if you thought, hmm, that was a little anticlimactic. Let's read it again. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals with him. There's almost a sense in which you want to go, is that it? Right? So much build up before, so many things were even told after, right? But if you've been with us this semester, if you're familiar with any Gospels, if you ever tried to read one of the Gospels all the way through, you will kind of know that the whole story of any Gospel, especially this Gospel, leads to this moment. Yes, it's at the end, but the whole Gospel is littered with signposts that point us to this moment. In fact, in a a chapter we did not read at the beginning of the semester, in Luke chapter 2, we're told about how Joseph and Mary took their baby Jesus up to the temple um, to be, I don't know what the word is, not dedicated, but uh, maybe it was dedicated. I forget what they call it. But took him up uh, to the temple as was the custom uh, when you had babies. And there's a guy, Luke tells us about a guy named Simeon that was at the temple. A guy that had been looking for the kingdom of God. Didn't, hadn't heard about Jesus. Didn't know Joseph and Mary. But we're told when they enter the temple, this guy named Simeon approaches them, looks at Jesus, the baby, and says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And then he looks at Mary and he says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. There, at the outset of this gospel, when Jesus is but days old, Mary already is facing the shadow of the cross. The whole story of this gospel walks the road of the cross. Remember, we were in Luke chapter 9 one week, and Jesus Himself started laying it on thick. He tells His disciples, look, the Son of Man must suffer. And must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then if he wants to add insult to injury, he says, oh yeah, and if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross daily. 
You remember we talked about the fact that that would have made no sense to the disciples. The cross was not something affectionate. That would have been like me telling you, hey, if you love RUF, you're going to have to take up the electric chair daily. How many people would sign up for that? I don't think many. I don't think y'all like me that much. Do you? Uh, No, sorry. Levity at the wrong moment. I'm sorry. Jesus himself, over and over, we heard about Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration are there to talk to Jesus. And Luke tells us what they're there to talk to him about. His departure. His death. Right? He comes down from that mountain and he heals a boy and the crowd marvels. And he pulls his disciples aside and he says, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And throughout this gospel, he says things like this, and his disciples don't get it, but he's constantly telling them, you've got to understand, I'm going to die. This whole gospel walks the road of the cross. And what it tells us, what it makes clear for us, is that the cross was no accident. In Jesus' mind and understanding of His own life, He knew that this was not an accident. Nor was the cross an act of sentimentality. He didn't look at it and say, Hey guys, look, I'm going to go to the cross, but it's going to be okay. He never says that. It's not an accident, nor was it sentimentality. The cross, though, dominated the life and the ministry of Jesus. Every single bit of it. And Luke has repeatedly shown us, even in the sayings of Jesus, that Jesus Himself deliberately walked the road of the cross. He knew that's where He's headed. What Luke is telling us over and over and over again is one simple thing. Jesus came to die. Jesus came into this world to die. What was Jesus' life about? Dying. And that's supposed to help us be more sure about who this Jesus is. What does this mean for us? If the cross dominated the life and ministry of Jesus, what does that mean for us? Well, there's a commentator, Michael Wilcock, that puts it better than I ever could. I want you to listen to this. In the same way, let no reader imagine that he has begun to understand the Christ of the gospel, or indeed even the gospel of Christ, unless the cross has come to dominate his horizon also. Only when he was sought it and reached it and let it fill his vision can he say that he is beginning to see what the Christian faith is all about. Only when we have let the cross of Christ dominate our horizon also have we even begun to get it. That is what this is about. This is why he told the disciples over and over again. Because he needed it to fill their vision. And this is what this means. Wherever you find yourself tonight, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're an assured Christian or a doubting Christian or a skeptical Christian, wherever you are, what this, is, this is what this is telling us. The road of the cross in this gospel tells us this. If, you, if what you think about yourself in the sight of God is not singularly dominated by this event, then you have completely missed the point. Let me say that again. If what you think of yourself in the sight of God is not completely dominated by this event, then I have some news for you. You have completely missed the point. The death of Jesus dominates everything. Everything. You cannot have Jesus without His death. You cannot have Jesus without the way that He died. You cannot have Jesus without why He died. 
It dominates everything. And again, I, I, I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what holds you back. I don't know maybe what's causing you to doubt when you didn't have doubts before or what causes your skepticism. Maybe, maybe you have problems with the Bible, right? Maybe historic, you have historic problems with the Bible. Like, how can I know what is what in the Bible and, and if it should really be there? Or maybe you have scientific problems with the Bible. Like, how can I really believe that really happened? Because that just doesn't seem like it could have. Maybe you have moral problems with the Bible. Maybe like you really like Jesus and you really like the good news, but you don't know if you can believe in somebody and believe in a book that says some of the things that it says about sexuality or says some of the things that it says about gender roles or whatever it could be. Maybe you have problems with the church and Christians because you actually your experience with the church and Christians is that it actually looks nothing different than everything outside in the world because it's actually maybe in the church or Christians that you've actually experienced the most tangible examples of racism that you've ever seen in your life or the most tangible examples of homophobia or or political, man, don't even want to bring that up. Political craziness, whatever you want to call it. Maybe you just don't feel it anymore. And like you thought you did and you thought you had it, but man, it just doesn't do much for you. Or maybe you're just worn out. You're tired of trying. Those things are not unimportant. Hear me say that. I would never dismiss any of those. But you've got to hear this. Because Christianity claims that the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, together with what we'll look at next week, His resurrection, is the most defining moment of all history. From beginning to whenever it ends, the singular most defining event of all of human history is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so I would at least encourage you or ask you to do this. If you're going to reject Christianity, at least do it because the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth has no credibility with you. Because if it's something else that's hanging you up, you're missing it. I promise. Because all the roads of the story, all the roads of this religion, this faith system, whatever you want to call it, All of them lead to this Jesus. And Luke wants to ask, what is so compelling about this Jesus? And Luke's answer is, he died. That is the most compelling thing about him. The road of the cross. Now let's move on to the story of the cross. What is the story? And we're kind of dealing with Flannery O'Connor's nutshell principle in that. Like I've got 10 10 or so minutes to give you the nutshell. Um, But again, there's a story that Luke is telling in the events of Jesus' death. though, Even though he gets to verse 33, and all he tells us is they got to the place and they crucified him. It happens that quickly, right? And so maybe you're wondering, like, what's missing? Well, like, why aren't, why aren't there any details? Like, how the nails went in and what the cross, like, did. was it a full cross? Was it a T? As if that really matters. But the, you'll find it interesting to note that none of the Gospels... Give us gruesome details. Whatever you've seen in a movie or TV or whatever, none of the Gospels go into specific detail of the state of Jesus' body, the open sores and bleeding wounds. They don't go into how many, if his eyes were shut from being beaten and flogged. They don't talk about how many uh, hammer strokes it took to drive the nail in. None of the Gospels give us those details because that's not the point of the story. It's not the point of the story. Look at uh, verses, let's see. 
think it's 27, uh, verses 28 and following. I don't know about you, this is, this is something that Luke records that the other gospel writers don't. I think this is the most fascinating part of Luke chapter 23. What Jesus does here in verses 28 and following. He's got these women that are following, these women that Luke has told us has been with him for a long time during his ministry. Okay? And they're following, and they're weeping, obviously, because I mean, somebody they love is going through this, and they know what's about to happen. They're weeping. And he looks at them, and in all seriousness, he looks at them and says, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. What in the world? Right? It doesn't really make sense. This is a whipped, beaten, shamed man that's about to be put to death even though he's completely innocent. And so it seems perfectly logical that we should be weeping for him. But Jesus' understanding of what he's going through told him, no, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. The message of the cross, please hear this. The message of the cross is not and has never been to be overwhelmed by what Jesus went through. That is not the message of the cross. None of the gospel writers dwell on Jesus' sufferings, even though they were very, very real. The point is not how Jesus suffered. The point of the story is why. Why would a perfectly righteous and holy man such as Jesus, God Himself, be put to death? Why? And that is the point of the story. Let's go back. We didn't read the first part. I didn't want to take ten minutes reading the whole chapter. But one thing that Luke is driving home with every little story that he throws into this chapter is that Jesus was innocent. Every single part, Jesus was in it. He was innocent. He was innocent. He was innocent. We read at the beginning of the chapter, Pilate Pontius Pilate, a Roman, he doesn't care who Jesus is. He doesn't care who the Jews are. Three times he tries to get Jesus off. Herod himself, the Jewish king, who earlier in Jesus' life had sought to kill Jesus, even tries to give him back. The leaders, they can only make up charges against him. The criminal next to him knows he's innocent. The crowds go away beating their breasts because they realize that something bad probably just happened. The centurion, after his death, looks and says, surely this man was innocent. So the question is clear. This is what Luke is setting up for us, the reader. He was a skillful writer. He knew knew what he was doing. The question for us is clear. If it was not his own sin that hung him on a cross, then what did? That's it. That is the story of the cross. If it was not his own sin which nailed him to the cross, what did? Because what you see that Jesus has shown through his miracles, through his teaching, and through his interactions with people throughout his whole life and ministry is that in the cross of Christ, we see God dealing with our most fundamental problem. The sin and the righteous judgment that we deserve because of it. That is the story of the cross. Jesus says that to truly understand His death on the cross, we must first weep for ourselves. We must see Jesus' death rightly only when we look at it through the tears of grief over our own sin. That is when we see the cross rightly. That there is something about me. That there is something 
in me that is guilty, that is wrong, that is deserving of open shame. But Jesus, for whatever reason, decided to take it on himself. That is the story of the cross. And we get two images uh, throughout his crucifixion that make this really clear for us. First, we see the darkness that falls on the land. And then secondly, in a minute, we'll look at the veil uh, that we won't look at it, but I'll mention it. The veil that's torn in two in the temple. But first, the darkness. That's the main point here as far as the story of the cross. All the Gospels clearly tell us that all the critical events of Jesus' death happened in darkness. He's betrayed in darkness. He is tried in darkness. And when he's hung on a cross, not even creation itself can hold light on that hill. It happened in darkness. And throughout the Bible, one of the clearest signs of God's judgment on sin is darkness. And according to the Bible, our most fundamental problem is an inward darkness. I loved, I I have like so many different sermons with quote this movie in different ways but the dark knight rises that third batman movie with the of the christian bale batman movies and i won't do the voice for you but there's that awesome scene where batman is down in the sewer and he's fighting bane bane is like man tom hardy i love tom hardy anyway um so he's fighting bane bane is just overpowering him and so batman goes to his last trick that he thinks of he cuts off all the lights and i looked this up on youtube and it gave me chills all over again And I won't do the voice, but I'll read you what Bane says. Oh, you think darkness is your ally, but you merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. And by then, it was nothing to me but blinding. The shadows betray you because they belong to me. It's spooky. I love it. (laughs) Here's the thing. According to the Bible, we are all born with Bane in our hearts. We are all born in the darkness, separated from God because of our own sinfulness. Paul goes so far. The great Apostle Paul, he's got so many different verses throughout his letters that you put on post-it notes and hang on your mirror or wherever you hang post-it notes. Do you all even have post-it notes anymore? I don't know. Um, We used to have pencil. Anyway. um, In Ephesians 2, Paul, amazing grace-filled things that Paul says throughout his letters. Paul says this, though, at the beginning of Ephesians 2, that before and apart from Jesus, we were by nature children of wrath. That's who Paul says we are. In other words, we are not born neutral. We are born bent on having our way against the will of God. And the Bible says that that is darkness. And here's the thing. You may be doubting somewhat what I'm saying or what I'm trying to drive home. But if you really think about it, if you're really honest, we have all experienced darkness. There's not one person in here. This is the problem with social media, right? Because we all get depressed when we look at everybody else's Instas over spring break or whenever. Because everybody else's lives seem to be so full of light. Because we know that there's darkness in our life. And it just reminds us of it when we see other people are happy, right? Some of you have experienced the darkness of depression. 
Right? There's times when you get out of bed and you are nothing but sad and nothing in your life seems right, but you don't really understand why. Or you've experienced that existential darkness, right? Where you just have those days where you think to yourself, what is even the point? Why am I even trying? Or you've experienced that darkness of repeated choices, right? Where you just seem to have this cycle of over and over and over again, doing the same exact things, knowing how much shame they bring you every time you do them. Or worse yet, you've experienced that darkness of what that person did to you and no one else in your life knows. The thing about it is, y'all, the Bible doesn't say that our problem is that we're in the darkness. The Bible actually says our problem is that we love the darkness and we love it more than we love the light. Jesus himself in John three nineteen, he says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The story of the cross is that we have a problem. That there is condemnation on our head and that the wrath of God against sin is against us. And Jesus calls us to weep for that. But he calls us to weep for it because when we see that, then we see what is our only hope. The cross of Christ. That's the story of the cross, but it doesn't end there. That's the beauty of it, right? We'll end with this, the salvation of the cross. The beauty of the story is that this isn't the ending. This is what separates Jesus from every other guru and religious leader that there's ever been. This wasn't the end. It was only the beginning. And it was barely scratching the surface. Because there's salvation in this cross. And there's salvation in this cross because what we're told is that what was true of you has been fully and definitively dealt with once and for all in this cross. That is the salvation of the cross. And I don't mean to jump to another gospel, but I I think there's a a story of Jesus and some words of Jesus himself that come to us in John 3 that really help us understand this. John chapter 3, you might remember, is when Jesus meets a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who comes to him in the night, in the darkness, by the way, not insignificant, to ask him about what what this kingdom thing is he's preaching. And maybe you'll remember the familiar uh, thing that Jesus tells him, that unless you're born again... You'll be, uh, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the same exchange where we get John 3.16, the most popular Bible verse, right? But right before John 3.16, there's two things that, there's a thing that Jesus says that we often miss. John 3.14 and 15, Jesus tells Nicodemus this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Let me read that again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Jesus is recounting a very obscure Old Testament story. It's one of those stories that people point to and say, that's why I can't believe in that God. Numbers 21, if you want to read it for yourself, is a weird story where Israel is wandering In the wilderness, because God has said they have to wander an extra 40 years because they've sinned uh, and not believed God. Uh, And we find what they're usually apt to do in the wilderness. They're grumbling against God again. And so we're told that God 
as judgment against their sin of unbelief, sends fiery serpent. I have no idea what a fiery serpent is, but I hope I never meet one. We're told that God sends fiery serpents into the camp that are biting people and people are dying. And so as Moses was apt to do during this time, Moses goes to God in prayer and he intercedes for God's people. And so God provides salvation. And this is what happens. He tells Moses, make a serpent out of bronze and wrap it on a stick, lift it up and have people look at it. And when they look at it, they will be saved. Did you catch that? What did he put on a stick? A serpent. In other words, the people in the camp had to look in faith to the very thing that was killing them to find salvation. And Jesus says, and so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here it is. Jesus never committed any sin. And so if he's not hanging because of his sin, he must be there because of someone else's. It's the only other option. The salvation of the cross is that Jesus became what is killing you. Jesus became what is killing you. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it like this. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, Paul puts it like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Peter in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When you have fully understood the salvation of the cross, you come to know fully what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that nothing, neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How in the world is that true? Because He was separated for us. Now think about all that. I know that was a lot. But think about this. If we begin to understand that, do you think it maybe then begins to help us understand how Jesus could honestly, honestly ask His Father to forgive the people that just hung Him on a cross? Or it could tell us how He could tell the thief, honestly, today you will be with me in paradise. Or how we could be told that the temple, the veil in the temple was torn in two, as the author of Hebrews puts it, because he entered into the holy place once and for all, but not by the blood of goats, but by his own blood. It's how rebels and murderers and insurrectionists and addicts and perverts and racists and self-righteous people like you and me get to come in. Because the innocent one has taken our place and now we wear his righteousness. Again, I asked him a while back, I don't know what's holding you back from God. What is? Is it your hatred towards your parents? That you've had this thing against your parents for so long and you're just so tired, maybe because they didn't love you well, or maybe because they didn't love each other well. Guys, is it the fact that you find yourself night after night after night going back to the same exact website knowing how much you hate it? 
girls, is it the fact that you tend to give your heart or maybe even your body away to the first guy that makes you feel wanted? What Luke is telling us and what Jesus would tell us is that Jesus became that on the cross. I don't know what you think is killing you tonight, but what Jesus is telling you is that he became that on the cross and it was put to death forever. He became that on the cross in the sight of God. He bore in himself each and every single ounce of God's judgment that those things justly deserve so that you and I would never have to. And so that we could stop trying to be our own savior. Some of you, you're so confused as to why you can't just stop. You look at your life and you say, I know I need to stop this or I know I need to do this. And just cycle after cycle after cycle, you find yourself exhausted. You're trying to be your own savior and you can't. Some of you come to a Bible study like this and what you actually want to hear is, look how much Jesus loved you. Don't you love him? It's not the message. You're exhausting yourself. You're trying to be your own savior. This is what the cross is telling you. It's not that you need to be a better person. It's not that you need to get your life together. It's saying, here is the one who is better than you. Here is the one who is perfect. Here is the one that actually justly deserved all the best things in the world. And he gave it all up for you. So that you could stop trying to be your own savior. That you could truly believe that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That that actually is a true statement. It's not something that you work yourself into. I'll end with this. It's one of the, the first time I heard this, it blew my mind. And it's an amazing fact. You know, Jesus, every year, we, we and our culture, whether they celebrate for the right reasons or whatever, celebrate Jesus' birth, Right? It's like a seminal moment in our culture that Jesus' birth is this huge holiday. Jesus never told us to do that. Do you find that interesting? Every year we put on our best pastel tie and we eat candy and we take our family pictures in front of church, right? Celebrate the resurrection on Easter. Jesus never told us to do that. You know what he did tell us to do? To commemorate his death. And he told us to do it through a meal. The Lord's Supper. That we might feed on it day after day after day after day. And as Paul says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We sing this song often here. It's one of my favorites. How deep the Father's love for us. One verse goes like this. It was my sin... That held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I just have one question for you tonight. Do you know that? Do you know that? Would you believe that the end of someone else's life could actually be the beginning of yours? I implore you, believe it. It's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We know that we stumble around in so many different ways. But if we're honest, we don't honestly believe most days that there's any cure for it. Would you point us to the cross? Would you point us to the one who took on all the darkness of this life so that we could be in the light? That he took on death and hell itself that we could have life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.